Uh, today we are continuing our series um, called Lost Books of the Bible, where we're looking at these books that are sometimes overlooked, sometimes forgotten, sometimes flat out ignored or avoided. And uh, the story that we're looking at today, it comes from the book of Nehemiah. And um, Nehemiah is one of these books, it's, you know, it's not a story about Moses, it's not a story about David, it's not a story about Daniel and the lion's den, so it's one of the stories that doesn't get as much press that we don't talk about as much. Uh, but we're going to dig into this story today, and um, from the ruins of what Nehemiah is rebuilding in this book. We are going to draw encouragement, and we're going to look at several questions for ourselves that this book challenges us with today. Now, here's what we need to understand, and we get this, but we need, to, we need to remind ourselves of this frequently. The Bible is not about us, right? The Bible is not a book about us, but because this is a timeless book, because it is the Word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, it continues to speak into our context, right? It continues to speak into our lives right here, right now, today. And we can read a story that takes place 2,500 years ago, and we understand that that's not a story about us, right? But we also understand that even a story written 2,500 years ago and the way that God worked through this person in that place and in that time, through God's inspiration and divine wisdom, he can challenge us right here, right now, today. That's what the Bible does. It continually speaks to us where we are and, and right here in this moment, challenging us, provoking us, encouraging us, and shaping us as the people of God in the world. So that's what this story is going to do for us today. We're going to draw these questions out and uh, allow the the story to challenge us as we walk through it. So uh, something that we need to do before we dive in is we really need to orient ourselves in the story that's taking place here, okay? And we need to just kind of get the broader picture of what's going on and place it in kind of the Old Testament context, okay? So um, we see this pattern over and over again throughout the Bible. And throughout the Old Testament, this is the story that repeats itself over and over again. God brings people into covenant with himself, right? God reaches out and through his grace and his mercy and his love, he extends relationship to his people and brings them into this place of covenant. It's not through anything that they've deserved or earned. It's simply by the grace and mercy of God of God and brings them into this relationship. And before long, uh, we see that they repeat this pattern of when going from a place of relationship with God to a place of rebellion against God. It's one of the oldest stories in the book, right? It finds its seeds all the way back at the beginning. Over and over again, we see this cycle taking place of God extending relationship, bringing us into relationship. But instead of having our hearts turned outward towards God and towards others with love, out of holy love that he pours out on us, instead, we have our hearts turned inward on ourselves. We forget the covenant that God has made with us. We turn our hearts away from him and turn them inward on ourselves. Yesterday wasn't just Halloween, it's also known as Reformation Day. And it remembers the day that Martin Luther 
launched the Protestant Reformation, right, by nailing the uh, 95 Theses on the church door and making this bold statement, right, in, in that moment. Martin Luther defined sin. Martin Luther's definition of sin is the heart turned inward on itself. We see that cycle repeating itself over and over again throughout Scripture. As a result of their rebellion, we see over and over again God's people fall in defeat over and over again. The reality of the story is it should stop right here. This should be the end of the story for the people of the Old Testament, for you and me as well, because we replay this same thing over and over again, don't we? This is where the story should end. But God, out of his grace and mercy, refuses to let the story end there. And he, when we turn our hearts in repentance, he brings us rescue. That's what that word is. You can't really make that out, can you? And then rescue, through his rescue, he brings us back into this relationship of covenant with him again. Okay, that's basically the history of the Old Testament in two minutes there, okay? Uh, That's where we begin our story today with Nehemiah. That's kind of the setting of what is happening. Um, When we think about the Old Testament, we often just simply refer to them as the people of Israel, right? We think about the kingdom of Israel. We think about Saul, the first king of Israel, David, the greatest king of Israel. And we think about Solomon, David's son, who expands the kingdom through the wealth and wisdom that God pours out on him and making Israel this kingdom that the whole world reveres, right? But what we often don't remember is that soon after Solomon's death, because of the arrogance of leadership, because of being blinded by pride, Israel, the unified kingdom, breaks apart. And it actually breaks into two kingdoms. We've got the northern kingdom that keeps the name Israel, and we've got the southern kingdom known as Judah. And both of these kingdoms fall into that cycle again, breaking covenant through rebellion and falling into defeat. Israel is defeated by the Assyrians and taken into captivity, into exile by the Assyrian Empire. And Judah is defeated by Babylon and taken into captivity by Babylon. And we hear the heartbreaking stories of what Babylon does. They, they come through and they take uh, uh, the first wave of people into captivity. They go through and they take the best and the brightest from the kingdom of Judah and, and take them away into slavery and captivity. And then the army comes back and takes another wave away into captivity. And can you imagine what the hearts of the people left behind felt as they see the army coming a third time. A third wave of invasion and captivity comes against them, and they absolutely destroy the nation of Judah. They destroy the kingdom. Within Judah is the capital city of Jerusalem and the temple, and it is wrecked. It is torn to pieces. It is burned to the ground. Absolute brokenness but God doesn't leave his people as captives in Babylon forever another nation invades Babylon the Persians take over Babylon and their king Cyrus one of his first acts is to allow the captives from Judah to go back home rescue and restoration and many of the people return back 
to the nation of Judah to rebuild it and to settle back in their homeland. That's where we start today in uh, the book of Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah is actually a figure who is among many of the people who decided not to return. All right, they decided even though they had been rescued, even though they had the opportunity to go back and start back over in their homeland, they decided not to do that. They decided to keep their roots where they were. And Nehemiah finds himself rising up through the ranks. Now he is actually a servant within the royal court of the king, King Artaxerxes. Everybody say that together, King Artaxerxes. Awesome, there you go. You didn't say it. I don't blame you. All right. Awesome. And so that's where we find Nehemiah in this moment. He is part of the people that decided not to make the journey back. But then word comes to Nehemiah about exactly how much the, the, the city of Jerusalem lies in ruins. And it begins to break his heart. Word comes back that it has been completely destroyed, burned to the ground. Ruins left in ruins, and something starts to stir in his heart. In chapter 1, verse 3, it starts with this way. The word came to him. Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God. Of heaven. Nehemiah has his heart broken over the story of what has happened back in his home country and, and the place of his ancestors. And his heart is stirred by this. His soul is stirred by this. And suddenly he begins to develop a burden for a people and a place. That is the first question we're going to look at today as we look at these different questions. The first question is what? The what for Nehemiah was a burden for a people and a place. Something grabbed a hold of his heart and it wouldn't let him stay where he was. It wouldn't let him stay just like keep life like it was. Something started to eat away at him when he heard the news. When he heard the news, he had a choice in front of him. He could act on what he heard. Or he could ignore what he heard, but he could no longer pretend that he didn't know. And so when he comes to this pivotal point in his life, it grabs a hold of his heart and it begins to get a hold of him and will not let him go. The author Frederick Beekner says, the place that God calls you to is where your deep passion and the world's deep hunger meet the place that God is calling you to is where your deep passions and the world's deep hunger meet that is what a burden looks like that is what a burden looks like what is your burden what is that thing that is stirring in your heart that thing that is keeping you awake at night maybe it started innocently enough just as an idea Maybe it started just as a thought, but it has started to grow in your soul and in your mind. It starts out as a spark, but then it grows into a full-fledged burden. What is that for you? There's an artist named Regina Spector. 
And she says this. She describes it in a song called The Call. She says, it started out as a feeling which grew into a hope, which grew into a quiet thought, which grew into a quiet word. And then that word grew louder and louder until it became a battle cry. What is the battle cry in your soul? What is that passion that is burning in you? Something that you have to be a part of. Something that maybe began, began innocently enough as an idea, but it refuses to stay that way. It won't pass away with the moment that gave birth to it. It stayed with you. It's eating away at you. That is what it looks like when grace starts to awaken your soul to a burden. It grows and grows until it becomes a battle cry. Another author described it this way. He said it goes from a dream of what could be to a conviction of what should be. From a dream of what could be to a conviction of what should be. And it will not let you go. I love how Nehemiah wrestled through that in the context of prayer. Listen to what he says still in this first chapter. He says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and who obey his commands. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer that your servant is praying before you day in and day out, um, day and night. For your servants, the people of Israel, I confess the sins that we have committed, including myself and my father's house. We've committed them against you. We've acted very wickedly towards you. We've not obeyed the commands, the decrees, and the laws that you gave to your servant Moses. Remember the instruction that you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. Remember that, the rebellion and the defeat. But, If you return to me and obey my commands and turn your hearts back to me, then even your exiled people, even the ones that are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. So you can see that beginning to develop in him. He's got the what, and he knows that something is stirring. He knows what needs to be done. He knows what needs to be done to go back and to begin to rebuild and to restore what was broken down. It is burning, burning, burning. The next question, though, once we get the what established, is the who. Now, this is where it gets really complicated, right? Because we can dream all day about the what, and we can sense that passion and that burden, right? We can have the heart for it. We can have the mind for it. We can have the burden for it. But then when God starts to press you and say, okay, now who's going to actually go and do this? That's when we start to pull back a little bit, right? That's where we stop dreaming so big. When we start to think about, okay, who is actually going to do this? Who is going to do this? At the end of this prayer that Nehemiah prays, he makes this statement. I was a cupbearer to the king. I was a cupbearer to the king. And suddenly we begin to see the who come into focus for Nehemiah. He understands that God hasn't just given him a burden, but he's been preparing him for a way to make that a reality, for a way that God's going to bring that into reality in his life. And then in chapter 2, in verse 2, it says this, that the king sees 
what is that Nehemiah is carrying this burden. And he says this to to him. Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. This can be nothing but sadness of heart. When God starts to spell out a what in your heart, get ready because he's probably going to point the finger at you, right? He's probably going to point the finger at you. And when you start to ask the question of who, he's probably going to say you, you. I gave you the burden. You're the one who's carrying this weight. Even the king can see it on Nehemiah. He's been placed in this position and the king looks at him and he can see the burden on him. He says, this can be nothing but sadness of heart. When you start to carry that around, be careful because God is probably singling you out to do something about it. Now, we wrestle with this question and we don't like this question as much because we want to skip to the next question, which is how, okay? And so we fast forward to the how and we begin to list all of the reasons why we shouldn't be the who, right? We start to list all the reasons that should disqualify us, all of the obstacles against us, all of the reasons why God can't use us for this thing. We want to skip ahead to how, but God isn't ready to wrestle with this question yet until he has nailed this one down for you, okay? So don't move ahead, all right? God isn't asking how yet. He's still asking that. At this stage, he doesn't need your seven-step plan for how you're going to do it. At this stage, what he's asking from you is simply to raise your hand and say, okay, I'll do it. Okay, let it be me. Let it be me. You've given me the burden for it. I can't get around that. So there's got to be something to that. You've trusted me with the burden. So now let me be the one to do it. See, here's the deal. We believe that God can do the impossible don't we? We believe that God can do the impossible. We cognitively agree on that as a group here today. What we don't believe is that God can do the impossible through us. And so we refuse to move and wrestle that question of who to the ground. We refuse to raise our hand and say, okay, I'll do it. Here's the thing. That sounds like humility, but it's not. It's a lack of faith. It's a lack of faith because somehow you've developed in your mind that your weaknesses are strong enough to stop God from accomplishing what he wants to do through you. That somehow your past will completely short circuit what God wants to do through your future. That's not humility. That's a lack of faith in what he can do. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that God wants you to have more faith in yourself today. All right. He doesn't. God wants you to have more faith in him. He wants you to have more faith in him that he can do the impossible even through you. Okay, your weaknesses are not so great that they will stop God from doing what he wants to do through you. Now, a question that we have to wrestle with at this stage right here is the reality of, okay, God, what if I say yes? And what if it doesn't work out the way I want it? To work out? What if somewhere along the line you ask me to do something I don't want to do? Or what if I try something and I fail? What if I fail? Here's the deal God will never fail you. All right? God will never fail you. Here's the other reality 
you might fail. God will never fail, but you might fail. That thing you want to do that you feel like God is pushing you into, you don't know how he's going to use that. You don't know what kind of plan he's got. You don't know how he ends up working that out. It might end up looking like failure to you. It might. He won't ever fail you. He will always be faithful. But it might end up looking like failure to you. I remember when we were first feeling the, the draw and the burden to, to start this church. I knew the what. We, we were agreed on the what. We knew it. And we began to recognize the who. And that God was asking us to be a part of that. One of the questions that I wrestled with over and over. But God, what if it fails? What if it fails? And I sincerely feel like the Spirit spoke into my heart. Matt, it might fail. I won't fail, but this might fail. Will you still go in obedience even if it fails? Are you willing to still step out even if it doesn't play out the way you want it to play out in your mind? We have to wrestle with that. Moving on to the the next question. Again, let me just clarify that. God will never fail you, okay? He will never fail you, but it might not look the way you want it to look. The next question is how, okay? When we get to this stage, this is where we begin to think about all the obstacles that are against us. Of course, Nehemiah thought about that. Nehemiah knew that, all of the obstacles that were up against him. In chapter 4, verses uh, 1 through 3, It starts to draw out and explain to us what some of those obstacles were. It says, when Samballot, this is a person with an interesting name, and uh, a person who was opposed to what they were doing because he was a local leader. He knew what Israel had been, what Judah had been, what the city of Jerusalem had been. He didn't want to see it restored to that power, right? Because he knew the old stories of how greatly God had moved through that. So he wanted to keep them from rebuilding the wall. But when he heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and he was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews who were working with Nehemiah on the wall. And in the presence of his associates, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? And Tobiah, another enemy of it, uh, who was at his side, said, what they are building, even if a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their wall of stones. They mocked them. They ridiculed them. As the story goes on, we see that they also actually threatened violence against them. They were putting up all kinds of obstacles against them in doing what God had called them to do in the what. They were putting up all of these obstacles. But I love the answer to the how that happens here. It's in verse 6 of that same chapter. It says this, So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half of its height, for the people worked together with all of their hearts. I love that. You know what God's strategy in this world is? I love this. God's strategy is, of course, his grace poured out through his son, Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit. All of that power belongs to God. But do you know how he wants to demonstrate that power? Do you know how he wants to reveal that power? 
God's strategy for revealing his power in the world is you. It's you. It's a group of people pulled together through the grace of Jesus, covered by the blood of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and working together as the church of Jesus in the world. And all of those obstacles that they came up against, they overcame them because God was with them and God was moving through them as they worked together. Chapter 3 of Nehemiah, you should read this sometime um, when, you're, when you're having trouble going to sleep. All right, Chapter 3 of Nehemiah might be the most boring chapter in the entire Bible. It's just a list of name after name after name. And it says this person was next to this person who was next to this person who was next to this person who was next to this person all working together on the wall. It lists person after person after person. Some of them were priests. Some of them had jobs of different kinds. We've got we've got everybody working together in the community, the community pulling together. And I absolutely love this next to. This person was this person, and next to that person is that person over and over and over again. And that is God's strategy. We've said multiple times as we look at Scripture, we understand that the protagonist of the New Testament is Jesus, but also the author of the Old Testament is Jesus, right? So we see already the echoes of Jesus, even in these old stories. We see what God is going to do down the road to build his church. And in this, we catch a small glimpse of the genius of God. We see it fulfilled as he pours pours out his Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, using all of the people to establish the church in the world. The power of God, it's his power, not ours. But he chooses to reveal it through us and all of the people working together next to this person, next to this person, next to this person. I love that. I love that. I love seeing that. I love seeing how this plays out in our small community here. And one of the things that we see is as a community is working next to each other, then community as in relationships start to deepen together. When you're working next to somebody on the wall, you begin to get close to that person and real and authentic community starts to happen and is cultivated as we share that work together. Let me just stop and thank all of you for the way that you are pouring into this, for the way that you're finding your spot on the wall, and for the way that you are digging in. I don't want to exclude anybody, but I just feel like I need to call a couple of people out on that. Brianna and Maddie were upstairs today in Quest Kids. Steve and Debbie working with Quest Kids all the time. I absolutely love that. I love seeing that. We've got our friends at the back. Uh, I believe that's that's Amber and Jason back there, right? We had uh, Caleb and Brianna and Peyton and, uh, I mean, Bianca, sorry, and Peyton um, and Jason up here. We've got uh, DeMont and Danny and Nancy and Lauren in the lobby. And just everywhere you look. People are coming together. Uh, Josh and Andrew driving the van once we get it rolling again, right? And driving Justin's minivan in the process until that happens. I absolutely love the way that this works together. Thank you for finding your place on the wall. If you haven't done that, we need you, all right? 
Grab one of these orange ones on the way out, one of the Love Lab papers on the way out. It's called Love Design. It can help you figure out where your place on the wall is. Jump in and be a part of it. The next question, when it tells us in uh, chapter 6, verse 15, that they built the wall in 52 days. The wall around the city of Jerusalem that had been burnt to the ground, that had been crushed by the Babylonian Empire. They rebuilt the wall, all working together. A miraculous momentum with God's hand at the back of it, working together. They rebuilt the wall in 52 days. In 52 days. It takes me 52 days to get, like, cleaning the gutters checked off of my to-do list, right? But all of them working together, and this happened. It's miraculous. It's miraculous. But here's what we also find. In chapter 13, we find Nehemiah has gone back to the king to give him a report. And while he's gone, the progress that they had made begins to fall apart. Much of the community starts to break apart. And when Nehemiah comes back, there is more work to be done. That's the reality of what we are at here, of the work that we are doing together. The reality is, and and the work that God might be calling you to do, The reality is the when, it won't always be that miraculous timing of 52 days. The work goes on and on and on, and it requires patience, and it requires obedience to stay at it and to continue working in obedience with God over and over again. The time of completion is not up to us. It's up to God in the way that he wants to run that in his own timeline. The time of completion is not in our hands. We don't determine it. We don't determine how long the work will take. What God is putting in our hands is when we start. Is when we start. He's calling us to dig in. And we might not even get to finish the work. But he's calling us to begin. The future begins in the past. And it's built in the present. The last question is why? And this is always the most important question. Always the most important question. It tells us in that same chapter in verse 15 of chapter 6 that the why is so that all the people around would see that God is great and to give glory to God. Whatever God is calling you into, there are subplots of why. Right? There are subplots of why. Maybe God is, is calling you to start like one of our friends here, a transitional employment bakery to help people find transitional employment as they're coming out of, of experiencing homelessness. Maybe that's what God is calling you to do. That's a why, but that's a subplot of why. The greater why is always the same. It's for the glory of God and the sake of the world. Maybe God is calling you to work against human trafficking. That's a subplot of why. The greater overarching why is always the same. For the glory of God and the sake of the world. For the world to be drawn into relationship with God and to be reconciled with God. There's an author named Michael Hyatt. And he says this. He said, we lose our way when we lose our why. We lose our way when we lose our why, whatever God is calling you to, don't ever lose sight of this. 
It is for his glory. It's not about you. And it's for the sake of the world that people might be drawn into relationship with him. Jesus, thank you for this story, for the way that it challenges us, for the way that it encourages us, for the way that it forces us to wrestle with the burdens that you're placing in our hearts. Help us to have the patience to wrestle through that in prayer with you, to get a clarity on what it is you're asking us to do, and help us to have the courage when your spirit sparks it, to have the courage to raise our hand and say, okay, I will do it. I'll take that step. I have no clue who this message is for today, but God, I pray that you would just press it on the right heart. Press it on that person that needs to hear this today. We trust you with that. We trust you with that. It's your name we pray. Amen.